0: Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 22, and I will be reading verses 14 through 20. Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God." Young children down front. Do you remember how we learned that Joseph was sold to Egypt and made a slave? And how Joseph became leader over all the land of Egypt, and his brothers came to see him and to buy food from him, and how he learned that they were sorry for what they had done to him and that they now had the love of God in their hearts. Well, the next part of that story is that Joseph's whole family, his father, what was his name? Joseph's father, what was his name? Jacob, that's right. His father Jacob and all his brothers and their families came to live in Egypt so that they could be close, (coughs) close to Joseph, and so that they could have food. Remember, they all lived in a land called Canaan. Well, the next part of the story is that Joseph died. And after Joseph died, the new king of Egypt was afraid of Joseph's family because there were so many of them. You see, he knew that they were not like the people of Egypt. They worshipped the true God and they did not live like the Egyptians. So he made them all slaves like had been done to Joseph. And this continued for four years years. That is a very long time. After 400 years, God raised up Moses to be the leader of the people of Israel to bring them out of Egypt and take them back to Canaan. But the king of Egypt did not want to let them go. Now, we're going to jump over a big part of the story to come to the important part that's related to today's sermon. God called his people Israel, my son. He called them his son. God calls his people his children. And that's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Our Father. So it was like the king of Egypt had kidnapped God's son. And God warned the king of Egypt many times. What was the king of Egypt called? Do you remember? I asked you this morning. What was the king of Egypt called? Pharaoh. That's right. Well, after many warnings and after many chances to let Israel go, God told Pharaoh, if you don't let my son go, then I'm going to take your son and your oldest son and all the oldest sons of everyone in Egypt, even the oldest of the animals. I'm taking them all. And to Israel, God said that each family needed to find a lamb that was perfect. That means it was strong and healthy, it didn't have any spots or broken hooves, it was perfect. And it's because that lamb was a picture of the perfect lamb of God, who is Jesus. And then they had to kill this lamb and catch its blood in a big bowl. And then they would take a branch that had leaves on it, so they could use it like a brush and smear blood on the doorpost of their house, around the front door. And this was the picture of the blood of Jesus that covers his people from God's anger against sin. Then the lamb would have to be cooked whole, and they were to eat it that night for supper. They would eat it with special bread and some bitter sauce. And the bitter sauce was a picture of how bitter their life was as slaves in Egypt. And being slaves in Egypt was itself a picture, a picture of living a life in sin. And being rescued from Egypt was a picture of God saving his people from their sins. Well, they had to eat their supper that night, standing up, dressed to travel, shoes on, jackets on, ready to go, because God was going to punish Egypt that night, just like he said. And since Egypt wouldn't let God's son go, God was going to kill Egypt's sons. So the people of Israel ate that night, dressed and ready to go, standing up, so as soon as it was time, they could just take off. At midnight... God's angel went through the whole land of Egypt, and in every house he killed the eldest son. But when he came to the houses of the people of Israel, he saw the blood on their doors, and he passed over that house. And God told Israel that from now on, every year, you have to remember this day as a holiday, like we do with Christmas and Easter. Because that day, because the angel passed over their house, They called the holiday Passover. On the night before Jesus was killed, he was eating the Passover supper with his disciples. And when they were done eating, Jesus took some of the bread and the wine and gave it to his disciples to eat and drink and told them that from now on, they would do this instead of eating the whole Passover meal. And that's because the Passover meal was a picture of Jesus dying to save his people. And now that Jesus was going to die, they didn't need to kill the lamb and eat a lamb anymore. Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection, and resurrection means coming back to life after you're dead, that is what feeds our souls. So now Christians eat the bread and drink the wine at the Lord's Supper, as we call it. And when we do that, Jesus is making our faith stronger. It's his promise to us that he has forgiven our sins and that he is always with us. Now, the little boys and girls in Israel, they ate the Passover meal because to them it was just supper. They didn't know what it meant. And little boys and girls have to eat supper. But when they got a little older and had been taught about their faith, they would realize that this was a special meal. And the Bible says that they would ask their dad, What does this supper mean? I know it's something special. What does it mean? And dad would explain it to them. And then they were old enough to eat it as part of their worship to God. That's why we have confirmation class here at church. As you grow up, you'll be taught here at church what your Christian faith is. And during confirmation class, you'll be taught to understand what this Lord's Supper means, and then you can be part of it too. I want you to pay close attention to the sermon this morning because we're going to learn how the Passover became the Lord's Supper and how each time we eat it, God is promising to forgive our sins because of Jesus' death. We're going to pray, and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good, and thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our sermon this morning is on the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper, and in saying Reformed, that we're distinguishing ourselves from Rome, we're distinguishing ourselves from perhaps many others within the broader evangelical world. And in doing so, we must first define what a sacrament is. A sacrament is a visible sign and seal of a spiritual reality. And equally important, a sacrament must have been instituted by Christ to signify and seal the grace of God in the gospel. Now, in saying that, I think it should be fairly obvious already where we differ, for instance, from Rome. Uh, five of Rome's seven sacraments do not represent any gospel grace and nor were they instituted by Christ. Marriage, for instance. Marriage was created by God to picture Christ's love for his church, but that does not represent the gospel, nor is it a means of grace by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, for one, unbelievers can marry, whereas baptism and the Lord's Supper are restricted to the church, to God's covenant people. By definition, a sign cannot be identical with the thing signified. If the elements were truly turned into the physical body and blood, as Rome teaches, then this would not be a sacrament. A sacrament must have these five features first, its institution, secondly, a physical sign, thirdly, a signification of a spiritual matter that points to Christ, fourthly, a relationship between the sign and what is signified, and fifthly, its purpose, which is to signify and to seal. So changing the essence of the bread and wine into the real body and blood of Christ would nullify all five features, meaning that this was no sacrament at all. Now you may ask yourself why do we speak the way that we do and it's because question 78 of our catechism teaches us that it is agreeable to the nature and properties of sacraments to be called by the name of the things which they signify. For instance in Genesis 17 10 God calls circumcision my covenant when in fact it was the sign and seal of the covenant in speaking this way, God is emphasizing the reality and the reliability of his promise, which is signified in the sacrament and sealed by it. Again, in Titus 3.5, baptism is called the washing of regeneration, when in fact it is the sign and seal of the washing away of our sins in regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So when we use the language of Christ's body and blood, we're speaking consistently With the language of covenants. When God makes a covenant with his people, he promises them something that signifies, he gives them something that signifies that covenant and which the partaking of seals the promises to them. If the elements were truly turned into the physical body and blood of Christ, then this would no longer be a sacrament. If the bread and wine are the things themselves, then it's not a sacrament because a sacrament signifies something else. The thing which signifies something can't be the thing signified. I'm going to stop saying that because it's going to turn into a tongue twister here in a minute. Our catechism addresses this question, though, beautifully because it says, it asks, okay, if these are signs and not the reality, then why does Christ call them his body and blood? And the answer is, Christ speaks thus, not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him. And that all his sufferings and obedience are as truly ours as if we had in our own person's suffered and made satisfaction for all our sins to God. Now our outline this morning is going to follow the flow of our text. So the first point is the supper is the fulfillment of the Passover sacrament. Secondly, what is signified and sealed, and then thirdly, we'll address the question of partaking properly. So first, the connection to the Passover. We draw the the conclusion that the supper is the Passover sacrament fulfilled from Jesus' very own words in our text. He says, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled. And immediately after these words, Jesus instituted the supper, and he himself did not eat or drink, but he distributed it to his disciples. Now, let's think for a minute about the Passover. The Israelites were, of course, just as guilty and as sinful as the Egyptians. But when God saw the lamb on their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over them. The blood of the lamb was a sign of the blood of Christ by which they would receive atonement from their sins and be saved from the wrath of God. When their sins were forgiven for Christ's sake, God would be able to dwell in their midst and, when, and they would be privileged to have supper with the Lord at one table. When they ate that lamb, it was as if God was the host in their home, giving them his food and his fellowship. To this day, that sign has never been abolished. We have a supper in the church at which the Lord is the host, where believers sit with him at one table, namely the Lord's Supper. Now, we no longer eat the lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Instead, we eat bread that has been broken and wine that has been poured out as signs of the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. At this supper, God is as close to us as he was to the Israelites on Passover night. The Passover was both a sacrament and a sacrifice. And we have to keep those two elements distinct, distinguished them very clearly. The lamb whose blood was smeared on the doorposts was the sacrifice that covers and makes atonement. The Passover supper, the sacrament of communion with the Lord, was based on that sacrifice. Now the timing of the institution is important in both cases. In establishing the Passover, the sacrifice preceded the institution of the sacrament, but they were instituted near each other time-wise to establish the connection. The sacrifice of the Passover was done the same evening that the sacrament was uh, established. Jesus instituted the sacrament of his supper on the night he was betrayed. The Passover was instituted before the actual events occurred. Jesus instituted the supper before the actual events occurred. In both cases, the institution preceded the actual event. And this is how God demonstrated what was being signified. Our celebrating the sacrament now, afterwards, is how God seals to us what was signified in the institution. In the Passover, the sacrament was instituted after the sacrifice, but in the Lord's Supper, the sacrament was instituted before the sacrifice. And this was done in order to tie the two forms of the sacrament together. Christ was showing that they were inextricably related. Remember, the regulations for the Passover required that the leftovers had to be destroyed. But Christ took bread and wine from the leftovers. The scripture says it was after supper. Thus showing that his newly ordained sacrament was the fulfillment of the old one. He took elements from the one and carried them forward into the other. And he was also teaching that the sacrifice of the Passover and all that it signified pointed to his sacrifice. And the scriptures declare Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, Now, one of the more convincing proofs that the supper is the fulfillment of the Passover is that Jesus gave these elements to his disciples after the Passover supper. They ate the Passover for the final time as Old Testament believers and then ate the Lord's Supper for the first time as New Testament believers. The connection between these two institutions would have been rock solid in the minds of the disciples. And is, typ- and is typical of all sacraments, there's representation. That's what signify means. So the little bite of bread and the little sip of wine are enough to be a representative sign and seal. Now, just as the Passover was a sacrament that was based on a sacrifice or pointed to a sacrifice, so is the Lord's Supper. And the primary proof that the Supper is a sacrament. And not a sacrifice is that Jesus instituted bread to be eaten, not lamb. He is the lamb. Now, had Christ instituted lamb to be eaten rather than bread, Rome would still be mistaken here, but the distinction would just be a lot harder to see. Christ replaced a whole plateful of food with a morsel of bread and a sip of wine. Enough to get the point across. And he replaced the main course, the lamb, with a piece of bread so that we didn't get the wrong idea. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are feeding by faith. To say this is a sacrifice would be to say that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient and that it needs to be repeated. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 tells us that the reason the Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated is because they did not in fact, actually take away sin. They were promissory notes. And in verse 12, Paul contrasts this with the sacrifice of Christ, which he calls one sacrifice for sins forever. When all Israel ate the Passover meal, they were all eating the exact same meal at the exact same time, together as one body. That's why it was done at a specified hour. It was as if the entire church were joined in supper with the Lord, even though they were all eating in their own homes. They were expressing their unity among themselves and their mystical union with the Passover lamb that died in their place. The unity of the church and its union with Christ was signified by the fact that none of the lamb's bones were broken and that it was cooked and served whole. Jesus retained this feature in the supper, By giving his disciples to eat from one loaf and to drink from one shared cup. Whether or not we use one shared loaf and one shared cup, we should view it as if we do and recognize what that symbolizes. The second point is what is signified and sealed. I'm following the format more or less that I used last Sunday by showing what the sacrament signifies And then, what it seals. And in doing so, I'd like to refer you to the wording of our liturgy that I put together and had printed up on our new pew cards. We read there that the Lord's Supper is five things to us. Number one, an abiding memorial of his precious death. Number two, the seal of his perpetual presence in the church by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the mystical exhibition of his one offering of himself made once, but a force always to take away sin. Fourthly, the pledge of his undying love to his people. And fifthly, the bond of his living union and fellowship with them to the end of time. That's why we say we're not dealing with mere signs, but with the spiritual realities which these signs represent. To be a sacrament, the thing must be a sign and a seal. A sign only is not a sacrament. That would be like raising a toast to your best friend at the dinner after his funeral. To Robert, you know. When we drink the cup, it isn't just a toast to Jesus, it is a true seal of all that his death accomplished for his people. Our liturgy calls it a memorial. That doesn't mean that it's all it is. Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. That's true. But this is not just a memorial, it is also a seal. It seals to us his promise to be with us always, even to the end of the world. It's also an exhibition of his one offering of himself to take away sin. Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed over and over and over. All the sins of his elect were reckoned to his account as our covenant representative. His people have no more sins that need to be atoned for. We may have some that need to be repented of, but they are atoned for. We also say that it is the pledge of his undying love. Now, in some ways, I guess you could think of a wedding ring. The ring is not the love itself, nor is love necessarily guaranteed real by the giving of a ring. But if you have a wedding ring, you have heard the words, with this ring, I thee wed. And we all know that these words actually mean, this ring is a pledge of my undying love. That's why we're always a little suspicious when we see Mr. or Mrs. slinking around without their ring on. Furthermore, the supper is the bond of Christ's living union and fellowship with his people to the end of time. As long as we are on this earth, the sacrament of the supper tells us that the bond between Christ and his church is real and living. In short all the treasures of spiritual grace are presented to us in the supper because Christ is the substance of the sacraments. The communion we have in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus is a spiritual mystery which can neither be seen by the eyes nor comprehended by human understanding. That's why it's figured to us by visible signs. In this way, it is not a bare figure, but it is combined with the reality and substance. That's why it's appropriate to call the bread Christ's body, since it presents and represents his body to our faith. Hence, when we see the visible sign, we must consider what it represents and who has given it to us. The bread is given to us as a figure of the body of Jesus Christ with the command to eat it, It is given to us by God, whose word is immutably true. In his short work on the Lord's Supper, John Calvin writes, If God cannot deceive or lie, it follows that it accomplishes all which it signifies. We must then truly receive in the Supper the body and blood of Jesus Christ, since the Lord there represents to us the communion of both. Were it otherwise... What could be meant by saying that we eat the bread and drink the wine as a sign that his body is our meat and his blood is our drink. If he gave us only bread and wine without the spiritual reality, would it not be under false colors that this ordinance had been instituted? We now come to the question of partaking properly, misunderstanding the command from 1 Corinthians 11, to examine oneself, has been the source of a lot of spiritual anguish and emotional turmoil for many Christians, turning that which we said was the seal of his perpetual presence and the pledge of his undying love, something that should make us confident in God's love and And our participation in his grace, it has turned into something that causes us to doubt our participation in his grace and doubt his love. And for that reason, I want to address this issue. Now, the command comes in the midst of a rebuke related to an abuse of the supper in Corinth. And the sum of Paul's rebuke is that they were not rightly discerning the Lord's body. Now, the question that we have to answer then is, what does Christ mean here by the Lord's body? As we're aware, the term could refer to Christ's personal body or to his mystical body, which is the church. So is Paul saying that the the Corinthians were abusing the supper because they were failing to discern Christ's body, that is the sacramental nature of the bread, or were they failing to discern Christ's body, that is the church? It's my contention that Paul's referring to the second use, but its significance is is tied to the first use. What were the Corinthians doing? Well, they were celebrating the supper in a way that was almost picnic-like in atmosphere, kind of like a potluck. People would get together and eat before celebrating the the supper. But they were doing so in a way that denied their unity as the body of Christ. People who were rich would bring their supper to church and eat their lavish meals there. People who were poor would bring in their cup of ramen noodles or their crumbs and eat it there and have their lowly social status thrown in their faces. Now, that's not praise for poverty or blame for wealth. Poverty is not necessarily praiseworthy, nor is wealth blameworthy. But church is a place where we gather on the same footing as unworthy sinners saved by grace. Whatever our social status is out there has no relevance in here. And Paul is saying, the way you guys are behaving shows that you do not understand what it means for the church to be Christ's body. Corinthian communicants disrespected Christ's mystical body. Therefore, they were disrespecting Christ's personal physical body and its signification to them in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So when Paul says, "Let a man examine himself," he's not making a call to some morose and prolonged painful introspection in partaking of Christ's body in the sacrament, your being a member, a part of Christ's mystical body, is signified as well. So Paul's exhortation is, if you're a member, a living member of the body, shouldn't your treatment of the other members be consonant with your profession? In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul calls us to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. The proper self-examination, therefore, as Calvin noted in his short work on the supper, is of one's faith. It is not navel-gazing. Obsession with one's own unworthiness is a sin because it is a failure to focus on Christ and his worthiness. The painful introspection encouraged by many churches I find to be dangerous extremely dangerous and for three primary reasons first of all our sins are far too numerous for us to identify individually imagining that you could count your sins and then okay check this one off repent of this one is to imagine that they are far fewer than they actually are and since our hearts are deceitful our introspection will always overlook something and probably the worst of our sins hence it is self-defeating It leads either to despair when we realize how many and how great our sins are, or it'll lead to self righteousness. You know, my sins are more than I can count, or my sins weren't actually as many as I thought they were. They are two sides of the same coin looking to oneself instead of looking to Christ. Secondly, that introspection gives the false impression that God's grace can be merited. If I repent hard enough, then I can be worthy to receive God's grace. None of our good works can earn God's favor. Repentance, as good as it is, is not meritorious. I never cease to be amazed at the people who claim to believe that salvation is not of works and then somehow smuggle good works in the back door. Our salvation, as the Reformers put it, is sola fide, by faith alone. And it's important to point out that even this faith is a gift from God. It is not a work which we do, which then enables us to save ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. As Thomas Tyler put it, we're not saved for believing, but by believing. God saves us by faith, and this faith exhibits itself when we repent. He does not save us because we have repented, as if it earns brownie points with him. Neither does he save us because we believe. It is by faith, not because of it, that we are saved. The 11th century theologian Anselm of Canterbury warned his readers, you have not as yet estimated the great burden of sin to think that sin is something that can be atoned for by repentance is to underestimate the sinfulness of sin god requires repentance yes but salvation is not earned by it now our third warning is it's e- even worse is that introspection gives the false impression that god's grace has to be earned i mean what else is implied In the idea that before you come to the table, you must stretch yourself upon the rack of conscience to see whether or not you've done anything you have inadvertently forgot to repent of that might cause you to damn your soul to hell if you partake of the supper that's why in our liturgy i made the point to say that the unregenerate eat and drink judgment to themselves not because they're sinners but because they're unrepentant sinners not because they're unworthy but because they eat and drink in an unworthy manner we are all sinners and we are all unworthy and that's why we need the grace of god sealed to us in the sacrament of the table The notion that we have to get cleaned up enough to receive God's grace will be the ruin of many souls because it's God's grace that cleans us from our sins, not our repentance and our sincere desires. If access to the table were contingent upon our faithfulness, then not a single one of us would be allowed to approach it. We come to the table because of Christ's promise and Christ's faithfulness. Even when we have shown ourselves to be faithless, God remains faithful to his word and covenant. And in God's faithfulness, there is hope. So true self-examination consists in three things. And you're going to recognize the three G's of the catechism. Number one, acknowledging our sins. And recognizing that rather than let our sins go unpunished, God punished them in his own son by the shameful death of the cross. Secondly, searching our hearts whether we believe the promise of God that all our sins are forgiven solely for the sake of Christ's death and that his perfect righteousness is imputed to us as if we in our own persons had paid for all our sins and fulfilled all righteousness. And thirdly, searching our conscience, whether we have a mind to show our gratitude to God for such redemption.